The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Because I read it before I took the job. By the way, Ben didn't know I was going to say yeah. this. But, no, I didn't. It's yeah, very embarrassing, uh, by the way. But, yeah, by the way, yeah. that book, just for the record, that book has a lot of scurrilous slander in it. <laughs> uh, you know, I think a couple of things that stood out from it and actually helped me. I think, I don't know, it's maybe kind of interesting for you to see. Like, it's not, I was not a CEO, right? I read it and then I became a CEO. I really like the struggle part about mm -hmm. what a shitty job it is. And I think there was this, someone said, it's the worst job ever that you'll love. Uh, and it just yeah. normalized the kind of the crazy up, up and downs that you're going to go through and how nasty it's going to be. So that, uh, so I, I think it actually made my life much, uh, much easier as a CEO because everything was so lonely at the top. It's so difficult. It wasn't because in the book, I kind of prepared for war, uh, yeah. just reading that chapter, like, you know, all the quotes, like, you know, I slept like a baby, you know, woke <laughs> up every two hours crying. Uh, these things kind of prepared me for the job that, okay, this is like, you, at least the expectations were set the right way. Uh, and then the, the whole thing about hard thing about hard things, I think another way to look at it is that be careful with precedents and mm -hmm. simulate how it's going to be perceived by lots of different individuals in your organization, every decision and everything you say and everything they ask you simulate how it plays out the precedents it sets and how it's going to be perceived by lots of different individuals in your organization um, sort of prepared me to think, think twice before you say yes, or before you do something or whatever is happening to you, just do those things. What precedent is set to simulate out? How are other people going to view it? And what's it going to do to the organization? Uh, I think those were, uh, the main takeaways. I don't know if you have, uh, did I completely destroy the book and misunderstand it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's a lot of good po points about it. You know, one of the, I think most uh, underestimated skills of a CEO and maybe the most important one of all is, you know, can you see the company through the eyes of the people who are not in the room? Um, because that's always what screws you up. You know, you go, okay, we're going to make, we're going to reorg it this way, but you didn't really anticipate how it's going to affect your most important engineer or I'm going to give this person a raise and you don't really realize that people think that guy's an idiot. Um, and, you know, all these kinds of things, these decisions that people try and push on you when it's just you and them. Uh, and if you're not really thinking about, okay, what are the short, medium and long-term implications of me, you know, answering this question, making this decision, you know, taking this action on everybody who has a stake in this organization. And look, that doesn't mean you got to make everybody happy. It just means you need to know what the impact is going to be. And so I think that's right. I think that's a, a you know, one of the more important takeaways in addition to like, uh, none of us would have ever taken the job if we knew what we were going to get ourselves into. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of knew because I read your book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, that, but, but for sure, like, and I can share a mistake. Like one of the first early years, I said, okay, the company needs a strategy. I need to outline it for the company. I need to be clear. So I yeah. went out and said, look, we're really going to focus on X this year. And I thought it through really carefully, right? And then 
obviously several people, many, many people in the organization were focused on X and they were super excited about it. But then the people that were not working on X, they all got back to me and said, Hey, are we like fired or like, what's going on? And I say, no, 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 no. I'm not saying we're not doing what you guys are doing. I mean, there's a whole company. There's a lot of stuff we're doing. It's just the focus this year is on X. So like not, not simulating in advance that everything you say, look at it from every different employee's perspective. Uh, each yeah. of them will perceive it from their viewpoint and where they stand. Have you thought it through? Right. And then if you've thought it through, it's okay. Take the consequences and you're okay with it, but no surprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't walk into a landmine. What's your favorite? Uh, yeah, so, so it's interesting because the hard thing about hard things was, um, you know, kind of my intention with it was uh, to be the, the kind of, I don't know about the sequel, but the child or maybe the update to high output management, which, you know, was my favorite management book by Andy Grove. Um, and, you know, Why? it's kind of like, uh, well, you know, it, it had such a big influence on me and it had been written so long ago and nobody really knew about that. But, you know, I kind of worked to popularize it and then I wrote a new <laughs> forward for it and, and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I thought it was such an important book. Uh, or such a different kind of management book because in the book he didn't like, so management books tend to make like running an organization feel very clean. Take these three steps. This is how you write yeah. smart objectives. This is how you do, you know, you know, metrics that matter or whatever. I mean, not to criticize that book. Sorry. I didn't mean it that way, but you know, just like here is a eight step yeah. process to getting a result. And you know that's not true. Like anybody who's been in the job, you know there's no eight steps you can take to do fucking anything in, in running an organization that works like that. It's very situational. And kind of what you need to do is, is think about the difficult situations. And so a couple of things, you know, that he had in the book that were amazing to me was like one, you know, there's this – Every management book about performance management will say there should never be anything in a performance review that the employee doesn't already know about. And it's like, yeah, that is true. Um, but what then why have performance well, review? Well, and then what Andy says is like, well, let's say you get to the performance review and you haven't ever given the employee this feedback. Do you put it in or do you leave it out? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and of course, his answer is you put it in like, yeah, it would have been better if you had told him, but like you didn't tell him. <laughs> so like, are you not going to give them the feedback? Like, what are you talking about? And so those kinds of things where you have to actually, you know, think about, okay, yeah, they're not going to like that, but are you going to help them improve or not? Um, you know, another one that I love that he said uh, is, uh, you know, he had a guy, you know, people say, well, you know, like, did you train him? Well, I wanted him to learn, you, you know, the hard way, because the hard way is a better way. And Andy Grove says, at whose expense? The customer's? <laughs> like you're going to train this motherfucker on the job. And like, so, you know, that's what's going to happen. And so it was just so real. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, it's such a real management book, but it was, you know, this, you can't, I mean, at the time you couldn't even get it in hardback. There was no audio book. Like, it's just like this very obscure kind of thing that, you know, a few people in Silicon Valley liked. And, um, you know, so I thought, wow, you know, if I could write, a book, you know, that had that kind of style of reality, um, you know, that would be so great. And that, that, that was kind of the inspiration behind the hard thing about her. It's funny, uh, 
Kanye once said to me, he was like, uh, college dropout was the child of uh, John Mayer's A Room for Squares <laughs> and uh, Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill. And that's kind of how, you know, it was a, like a weird thing for him to say, but I understand it because that's kind of what hard thing about hard things was. It wasn't the same book, but it was meant to be like, okay, if he was going to write it again in a different way from my perspective, like how would he want me to do it? And uh, the, the, the great epilogue to that, of course, is, you know, years later, um, I was talking about the hard thing about hard things and somebody asked me why I wrote it. And I gave that story. I was like, well, you know, you know, here I was, you know, a young guy coming up as a manager, didn't know anything, trying to learn things. And I found this book from Andy Grove, who at the time he wrote it was the CEO of Intel. And it wasn't about how great Intel was or how fucking smart he was, which is what everybody's management book is that is in that position. It wasn't any of those things. He wrote a book that was like to help me learn to be a manager. I was like, that was the most like generous thing that I could even imagine that this guy would share, you know, the, the most important CEO in the world would share his skill set with a fucking, you know, loser like me. And, uh, and I, and I said, you know, in the, in the Stanford talk, I was like, if I ever became anybody, I would want to do that, you know, to, to do what Andy did. Um, and so he saw that talk and he said, and he called me up and he said, Ben, like, will you write, we're going to do a new release of high output management. Will you write the forward? And, maybe. uh, and I, I would say, you know, maybe the, one of the most rewarding experiences of my career was writing the forward because I wrote it with him and he fucking criticized every sentence of that forward. I mean, like he was redlining <laughs> it and attacking me and this and that and the other. And then, you know, finally, you, you know, we got to, you know, towards the final draft and he said, Ben, you captured it. You captured me. Um, I appreciate it, which is, you know, Andy Grove never complimented anybody. Mark can tell you. Uh, and it was just such a, such a, a great moment for me. And, and, and I, I feel like that forward, if you're going to read anything that I wrote, um, you know, that's a thing. So, uh, yeah, so that I haven't read it because I read the old version of high output management and it's a tough book to get into. I think that one of the reasons you popularize this is because I think a lot of people that picked it up, they read the first couple of chapters and it's like, Oh, we're in a breakfast, you know, factory and you're making <laughs> yeah, eggs, so you know? And it's like, come on, get out of here. <laughs> I don't want to hear about <laughs> eggs and breakfast. And bacon. Yeah. That, 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 that's why I, what Mark didn't like about it. He was like, what the hell? Um, so that's good. And actually Mark, maybe, uh, do, do you have a favorite management book? I do. And Ben, I don't know if we've ever talked about this one. Um, and I'd be curious what you think about it. Ali also. So, Mm -hmm. And 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 this this is a it's a management book. It's one of the only ones I like, um, and it's it's from a different perspective. So unlike you guys, I try to not run these companies, and so this this is more in the realm of trying to understand, kind of how companies operate, trying to kind of diagnose like what's actually going on. Um, it's a book called Who Really Matters: um, The Core Group Theory of Power, Privilege, and Success. Um, the author is a business writer named Art Kleiner, uh, who's written and co-written a whole bunch, a lot of books. Um, it's a really blunt book. And so basically the, the thesis of the book is that um, every company, you know, has its, its mission statement and its customers and its stakeholders and all its goals and its objectives and its key results and like all these formal kind of definitions for kind of why it does what it does. And, and what he basically says is that stuff's all basically a facade on the front of something much more important and fundamental, which actually drives behavior, um, which is basically what he calls the core group, which is basically the, the, the people who matter. Um, and so, right. And so, and it's like, 
you know, whatever. It's it's typically like the top half dozen to dozen executives in the company. It's maybe key board members. And then it, he also extends it. It could be like key outside, outside constituents. So it might be your regulator. It might be your, um, you know, union head. Um, you know, it might be, you know, your, your, your biggest customer, whatever that is. And, and basically what he says is that the actual purpose of the organization is to satisfy the needs, explicit and implicit, of that core group. Um, and the organization will do that at all costs, including, you know, arbitrary violations of every other kind of formal thing um, that the company says it's important to it. Um, but that it's a completely unstated process. Um, and he said it's, it's, like an, it's like some sort of weirdly like unconscious thing where it's like everybody in the company knows. Like if you sat everybody down and said right on this piece of paper who really matters in this company, um, mm -hmm. they, would all, they would all make the same list. Because everybody knows, oh. right? It's like it's it's basically like this is like you know deep kind of like primate behavior. Uh, mm -hmm. Like everybody knows who matters, yeah. um, and yet nobody will say it out loud. Oh, and by the way, right? It's not necessarily every executive, right? It's 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 just the ones who matter, <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah, no, 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 right. no, no, definitely. It's and it's not just executives, um, right? You know, it's people all through the organization. There's actually a great kind of. Uh, I don't know what you call it, analog. They're, they're, they're kind of opposite look at, of, of that situation. There's a book called, years ago, uh, written called Power Based Selling. Do you remember this book? Yeah, sure. I was going to say, yeah, I was exactly yeah. going to say the same book, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it's basically is how do, you die, how do you find the fox? How do, you, how do you know who matters in an organization you right. know, from a sales perspective? How do you figure that out? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the book is, it's a very fun book. Uh, I, I, one of my favorite quotes from it is, you know, if you're in an account and you don't see a competitor, check yourself for wounds because I assure exactly. you, you're bleeding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, exactly. You know, it's that kind of sales, like hardcore sales book, but it's the that's, same concept. That's, a, that, that's I, really interesting. I would say the same. I would pick the same book, actually. Powerbase, I think, you know, everybody says, oh, so you want to understand sales, read Challenger Sales. That's the right book to read. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, Powerbase is, you know, that's the most powerful book for sales, especially yeah. modern sales, right? And it's, it is the analog mark of what you're saying. It yeah. basically says you figure out how decisions are made in the organization, right? And then you figure out uh, how to actually influence them, and then how to block out the competition. And don't forget that. Uh, uh, that that that's I think exactly what uh, you know that book says. But I would disagree with one thing. I, I agree with that most organizations run that way. But if the institutions in an organization are really well set up, I think it becomes a little bit less so. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like yeah. saying, hey, height matters a lot in basketball. It does, you know? And it's like, yeah. you get superior advantage in height, for sure. Like, you know, and if you're super, super short, don't even play basketball, you stand no chance. It's largely true. Uh, but I think it depends on organizations. And organizations that have really well set up institutions uh, there's just checks and balances that makes it so that that department has to sign off before this department does it, and so on and so forth. Now, there might still be some individuals there, so, you know, the theory could still be right. Uh -huh. uh, but I think it's, and then you have these organizations that are not well set up, and it's completely anarchy. And that's definitely, like, there's six people that make all the decisions, and you just have to figure out who they are. And they're not even necessarily the six people at the top of the org chart. Right. Yeah, right. No, I, I think that's right. You know, and the, the way I would describe what you're saying, Ali, is there's kind of different degrees of inner circleness or clickishness. Yeah. Right. And if you do a good job running your organization, you get much, a much, much broader base of who can really contribute to the kind of strategy and the direction of the operation. And it's actually one of the things 
that um, I'd say early in my career as CEO, I screwed up and then have gotten kind of much better at over the years. And something we really like have to do in the firm because otherwise um, you can't get into new areas. But it is, you know, to Mark's point, like I think it's something that most venture capital firms deeply struggle with, which is why they don't often get to the new technology areas because you can't crack the inner the inner circle is all guys who worked on the old yeah, technology that's right. areas, right? Yeah, so, that's right. So it's let me give two examples. Yeah, here's yep. two examples just to say I, I actually agree with your statement, but just to spice it up a little bit here, Mark here. Um, take Google versus Microsoft. Um, you know, um, Microsoft did the Jedi deal, right, with the government. Uh, this is the big government deal that they've done. I think it's $10 billion or whatever it is. And then the whole company is now off building what's needed for that. It's sort of top priority across the board, and they're just executing like a machine. Um, take Google under a few years ago when um, Diane did this great deal. I think it was a deal with the CIA, right? Um, but the organization didn't like it. Like people far down in the hierarchy that are not the 16 people at the top didn't like it. And they kind of blocked it, right? And and I think people well, actually, they, oh, they, yeah. They reversed out. They had to get the money yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. But I would make a, but I would, Ali, I would make a different observation. Or I guess what our Kleiner would say is we now know who really matters at Google. And who really matters, right? And who really matters at Google? The core group at Google is no longer executive management, but the core group at Google are the activists who are able to force management. <laughs> but there's lots of them. Let's say the, the, the Chinese spies. Well, <laughs> maybe it's interchangeable concepts in certain companies. But yeah, yeah look, the, the executives that were the, the, the activists that were able to, you know, force Google management to back down. I don't know if you just saw, I'll just give you an example. Uh, Google actually, the news came out today, you know, they've had this big blow up in their AI ethics group and it's, it's, they've, they've had all this, like, there's just a huge amount of kind of sort of political drama that's evolved around that. And they announced today that they're actually going to respond to that, not by disbanding this group, but by doubling its size. Right. <laughs> and so like who now runs like Google AI, like, is it Jeff Dean or is it like the three or four like leading activists, like demanding that they, you know, go much deeper into this area that's causing so much trouble. And I think yeah, that, that yeah. 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 But from a Vostok perspective, I think Google, it's, I think it's fair to say, look, these are both two phenomenal companies, right, on the planet, right? It's, you know, it's easy to come and complain about mm -hmm. them and criticize them, but these are two of the best companies created by mankind. Uh, but if you compare the two, you could say Google is certainly a little bit more bottom-up, and Microsoft is probably, it's fair to say, more top-down. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think there is vari variations in these, in these companies, but yes, there, there's... There's definitely a core set of people, uh, and it's not many. So. Well, so the, the other thing I took away from this book at, at, uh, is basically it's like leadership actually matters even more than I thought, right? Which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, for a couple different reasons. Like w one is leadership matters more than I thought because, you know, it's very easy for leaders to become self-absorbed, right? Yeah. And, to, and to increasingly like basically like even just implicitly like direct the organization more and more to satisfy their personal whims or, you know, their self-aggrandizement or their own personal economics. And you see that in a lot of, you know, older companies. Um, and so, you know, leadership that is actually aligning its own behavior um, and its, you know, its own actual behavior comprehensively with what it says the company should be doing, like is, is you know, I, I guess I would say is, is both more rare and worth more than I thought. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, the other thing is, you know, this is- Maybe Ben should write a book about that one. For example, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Right. And then the other is, um, you know, the other is just on this, on the, like the Google, you know, the other thing is, you know, as these companies are dealing with these superheated political things, you know, Ben yeah. talks a lot about this, but leadership that's able to maintain the moral and ethical high ground in the company, 
um, is also probably worth more than we think, because otherwise, like who the core group is could actually shift in a way that could make it very difficult for these companies to run. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if, they, if a company becomes contentious and there's dueling factions to control the thing, you know, that's a incredibly dangerous situation. Um, and maybe, uh, Ali, do you want to get into this from one of the questions sure. of the crowd, like leads right into this? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, and Mark, you'll enjoy this question as well. So the, this question is uh, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase uh, told his employees that he didn't want uh politics and the championing of social issues in the office. Uh, Basecamp recently did the same thing and lost 30% uh, of their employees. And I think they actually lost 50% maybe, uh, whereas Coinbase lost about 5%. And then the question is, okay, how are you dealing with that at Databricks, Ali? Uh, okay. Well, I'm curious about your perspectives, guys, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, you can do either thing. You, you can have a company that's super right-wing. You can have a company that's super like left-wing, you can have a company that's completely apolitical, um, and the company will kind of reflect that over time. I, in fact, I think most cultures of most companies are the culture of the CEO. The personality of the CEO becomes the culture of the company. And I think what will happen with these companies is that they'll become like Brian Armstrong or like the Basecamp one, and it's fine over time. Like that's They won't have activists in these companies. Will the company fail? No, it won't fail. Will, will they be a little bit restricted in how they can hire? Yes. They will not be able to get people that really, really care about some of these social issues. The, those employees, they won't be able to hire. Uh, does that mean Coinbase will guaranteed fail? No, it doesn't. It just means from an inclusiveness perspective, it's less inclusive. Uh, my view on Databricks is, I think as leaders, we need to actually respond to what matters to the employee base. Uh, so if, if the pandemic is hitting, and people are freaked out in their homes and they're stressed and their relationships are falling apart and they're, you know, they don't have a home office, you should address that. You should talk about that. And it is political. Everything becomes political, right? Because the parties politicize everything, right? Whether it's wearing masks or the pandemic, whatever it is, everything becomes political. But I, I think you need to respond back to how people are feeling and what's top of mind for them. Uh, at the same time, I think you should do that without taking sides and getting overly political. Stick to the facts and lead the company. And I think that will inspire them. And you'll have then more room for employees that are more sort of bought into what you're doing. At the same time, I, I, don't, I don't believe we should go all the way to extremes and get into the sort of, you know, this kind of where companies are trying to like just become sort of political entities where the means becomes the end. So you're no longer a company building the thing you're building. You're instead just focusing on just one particular political cause. I think that also is not great because one, it limits inclusiveness and diversity as well. You know, I said this when uh, uh, when Trump won the election and big portions of the company were really upset. And I said, hey, we believe in diversity and inclusion at, at Databricks. The tent should be wide enough. We have employees who voted for Trump. Uh, let's not make them feel like shit because, you know, there was... The way mm -hmm. some of us were behaving back then, and it, you know, it, it was it was impossible to be a Trump supporter and have voted for Trump when the election, you know, that first election went down. Uh, so I think there is a balance. Basically, you shouldn't go to extremes, and you should stay balanced. You shouldn't get into too much po politics, but you should try to inspire the employees and give them leadership, show them the way, so that they feel some calm, and then they can uh, focus on the work uh, that they actually should be doing. What do you guys think?
Yes. So uh, I'll go to Buena. I'll go first, and Mark, you can join in. Um, so, look, I think that the the kind of first thing that you have to realize, kind of the an important principle, is like how does a company actually run? Um, you know, does it run as a dictatorship or does it run as a democracy? And I think that um, well, something like Google could survive being a democracy. Uh, Nobody can build a company as a democracy. Nobody ever has of any meaning. You have to build it as a dictatorship because it, a dictatorship can just move so much faster and more precisely than a democracy ever can. And there's not enough shared knowledge for the democracy to work to build a Databricks or a Coinbase or a Basecamp or anything. Um, so that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind. And then if you understand that, then I think that you have to as the CEO, retain moral authority. And I think that, you know, the challenge that some of these companies get into is when moral, when you say, hey, I don't know, you know, what we should think about George Floyd or, you know, the pandemic or, or what have you, like, I have no idea. What do you guys think? Um, <laughs> and, and it's a moral issue. Uh, which yeah. is, you know, like a lot of CEOs did because they didn't know what to think about that. Okay, when you yield moral authority, then you yield authority, yeah. period, uh, because everything, as you said, is a political issue. And so anything who you sell to, no, you can't yeah. sell AI to the U.S. government because we don't trust the U.S. government. Because, and we're more moral than you. We've already established that. We're the moral authority. And that is, you know, that's yeah. a place that I think as a young you company, can't. as a new company, you can't do until you're like, if you have a monopoly position and you're printing cash with a search engine, like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Like I, I you know, they have much more degrees of freedom than somebody trying to build something from nothing. That's a great point. So you can't even criticize a black man who's innocent getting killed over and over again. You can't even say that's wrong, yeah. you know, you know. <laughs> You don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't trust you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you, you have to be able to say something. And then now, look, our position in the firm is, is similar to yours, which is, look, we, we're about inclusion. And that means that you can come to work, and regardless of your political view, um, you're not going to get attacked at work. And if you do attack somebody because you think you're morally superior and they're morally inferior because – their anti-minimum wage because they think that it costs jobs and your pro-minimum wage because you think that's a living wage, then you like, you can, we're not having that. Um, yeah. Because like, you know, and then the story I, I, I love to tell um, on this, which is, is got to be my favorite story because it's true is, you know, like I was, uh, you know, my grandparents were communist. I grew up in a political family Um but, you know, kind of the, the person who had the best reputation in the family tree was my uh, great uncle, Harold. Um, you know, he was, you know, they, they still play his music. He's a, like an incredible composer, funny guy, all these things. Um, and, you know, I looked him up on Wikipedia and he, he, he passed away when I was 14 and I never met him. And I literally called my father. I was like, Dad, like, why didn't I ever meet Uncle Harold? I had heard so much about him. And he said, well, because your grandma, grandma didn't speak to him for 20 years. And I said, well, why didn't grandma speak to Uncle Harold for 20 years? He said, well, because he was a Trotskyite. And I was like, what, the, what was grandma? And he said, she was a Stalinist. 
And so like very slightly different kinds of communists, and they didn't speak for 20 years. That's how dumb political you know, politics can get in a family, let alone a company. Uh, and so you know, my view is, look, you can have whatever political view you want. You can go out and advocate for your cause in the world. But if you start advocating for your cause inside the firm and make people feel unwelcome, then, you know, that's a violation of the culture and you're fired. Like that's just, you know, and it has to do with working together and treating people like human beings. Yeah. And I think writing that letter by Basecamp, I mean, when I read it, um, I'm sure it was well-intentioned, but I mean, we're talking boss talk, you know, I mean, it's, that's probably the worst thing you can write up and put out there. Like why, why put it out in the public in that way? Um, it, yeah. it's guaranteed to have negative consequences. Um, Mark, what do you think? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that too, man. I, you know, I, I'm maybe I'm old, but I think like there's some kind of things like if you're a team and you work together to, you know, build something from nothing and change the world and, and kind of put your heart into it, then there's things that you discuss, you know, inside the group. And then there's things that you put out there for the world. And I think that, because companies have so much stuff leaked, um, they 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 want to kind of preempt that and put it straight out there. Uh, but I think you know some 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 things like for sure you know a company the size of Basecamp, I probably would not have done that. Yeah, yeah. Mark, I'm dying to hear what you think. Yeah, so let me suggest one other um, thing to read since you guys are on books. So it's, this is actually an essay, yeah. but it's one of my favorites, which gets I think on some of this, which is. Uh, let, me, let me pull up the, it's called the tyranny of structurelessness. So <laughs> yeah, that's a great title. The, yeah. the tyranny of structurelessness um, by, it's by a feminist writer named Joe Freeman, uh, J-O Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N. There's a Wikipedia entry that's good on it. Um, but the essay, the essay is worth reading. And so um, it's sort of famous and sort of, um, and I don't, I don't even know how I know this, but it's like sort of famous in like feminist, like uh, anarchist circles. So basically, this this uh, this this writer was was involved in uh, in the 1970s and what at the time were sort of these radical feminist uh, movements that went so far as to sort of create these new communities, basically you know sort of co- communes essentially, um, mm-hmm. sort of sort of feminist separatist compounds. And it was sort of an article of faith at that time that the right way to like to order such a thing was basically you know that the enemy was structure, right? The enemy was hierarchy. You know, the enemy mm-hmm. was having people in charge. You know, sort of oppression. You know, sort of oppression is built in any, any hierarchical system. Um, and so therefore the right answer was, you know, sort of a true democracy or, you know, uh, what now in you know, management circles is called a holacracy, right. Or, or just like, you know, or just like, you know, fundamentally like absence of leadership, people, people, you know, people, everybody contributes, you know, you know, Marxism in a lot of ways, like to, mm-hmm. from each yeah. according to her abilities, each according to her needs. And so she lived in one of these and basically came out the other side, you know, still a, a radical feminist, but, and a leftist, but uh, came out the other side with sort of a very striking conclusion that she walks through in the essay, which she basically says is, she basically says is when you do that, um, the result is not that you have no leadership. The result is that the sociopaths end up in charge. Yeah, well, <laughs> you concentrate leadership. It's actually yeah, it's right. really interesting. You get the same thing back. The problem you have, uh, you know, with communism is, you know, the, saying, okay, we're going to get rid of all the managers in a company and we're going to have a holacracy. Well, you're, you're, not, you're going to have one manager yeah, <laughs> and right. they're going to be a bottleneck for every decision. And it's going to be a, it's going to feel absolutely tyrannical to work there. And, you know, and, you know, it's funny because communism is power to the people, but right. it's not. It's power to Stalin. It's power to Mao. It's power to Castro. It's power to Ceausescu. And, 
you know, because you remove all the power from the private sector. And so it gets concentrated and whoever's controlling the government gets way too much power. And power concentration is, you know, dangerous at scale and gets more dangerous the higher the scale. And I think that, you know, that's why holacracies can work in very tiny organizations. Um, and, you know, like communism works pretty good in a kibbutz, <laughs> but not as well, you know, if you're the Soviet Union. So um, that, that was a little political. Maybe I should stop <laughs> with the politics, but just as an organizational theory uh, type idea. So, Mark, where does this leave us? So that's fascinating. I'm definitely going to check out the tyranny of the structurelessness. Uh, but uh, uh, where does this leave us with the actual Coinbase and Basecamp question? Oh, I, you know, I don't actually, I think I'm going to probably, I think I'm going to punt. I'm going to leave that to, leave that to you guys. I have too many, I have too many entanglements. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, all right. Should we, uh, by the way, there was a, another uh, question that the audience sent on this sort of uh, topic of sort of admitting mistakes, because it's, it's sort of in, in that realm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the questions was, um, let me see here. It was something on product. Yeah. So I asked, um, you know, have you ever talked about mistakes that you made on the product? Uh, if, if it was built the wrong way, how do you socialize that? Should you talk about that with the company and how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Like I actually think that's critically important. Uh, that may be the most the most important thing, um, yeah. yeah. Because everybody knows, like if you have a product problem, like people know it, and um, people know it from a, you know, the sales people will know it, the people in the product organization will know it, you know. And so if you don't talk about it, what happens? you look for the bad guy, you know, not the bad system, not the bad process, not the bad set of things that you all agreed on to get the product wrong, but you start looking for the scapegoats. And, um, and that is the most culturally destructive thing that can ever happen in a, in a company. I mean, it's just a nightmare because it's never one person whose fault it was that you've got a product problem. It's, you know, like it was a series of an unfortunate events. If you think about a product process and how many people are involved and how many people like, okay, it, sign off on it, implicitly go along with it and so on. And so the best way to do it is say, look, we thought this and, you know, that was a bad assumption. Like we thought it, I thought it as CEO and I let it roll. Um, and that assumption's not true. So we got to fix it. And that's, it's so important to be able to do that. Um, I, I would say, you know, from a leadership standpoint, if you can't do that, you shouldn't be a you should not be a leader because you're going to you're going to ruin your company if you try and bury the freaking news on that. Hey, so that uh, brings me to one of my it. favorite books. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> so, I agree 100 percent. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, if you if you can't talk about your product being broken, uh, then why should anyone ever be able to criticize anything that's wrong in your company? Uh, yeah. You're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're not going to even know it. So yeah, no, I 100% agree. So that brings me to one of my favorite books, um, which I think is actually good for multiple reasons, yeah. but it's yeah, Radical yeah. Candor. Ah, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell um, us why you like Radical Candor. 
Well, it's, it's back to what you said about uh, Andy Grove and how all books are about like, hey, here's like the three things you should do, right? So like all management books say, hey, when you get feedback, you should give it like in a shit sandwich. You know, when you start with a nice bun and then you have the shit in the middle and then you have another nice bun and you make them feel good and you just follow those three and it'll work great. And, you know, it never kind of works, right? It's like, oh, hey, Ben, you know, I thought you did that yesterday pretty well and then you're a great guy and sort of, yeah. you're, and then you come to the shit, which is like devastating <laughs> and then you try to put a bun on it and then they're like just in shock, right? Um, I thought uh, the deep insight of the framework that Kim Scott outlined in the book is yeah. if you frame, instead, if we, if we don't make it about the shit sandwich, so it's not about like, look, I'm going to tell you what you're good at, but I'm going to also tell you what you could improve. And then I'm going right. to tell you again what you're going to play. A, yeah. Right. It's not about me playing a psychological trick on you to give you feedback in a way that you don't quit. Like that's, that, that's not a good. Yeah. Point. Yes. Everybody knows yeah. the butt is coming, right? It's like, yeah. hey, okay, some, you know, we're doing feedback here. You're really, really great. It's like, okay, tell me the real thing. Like, get to it. Um, I think the thing that's powerful about the book is that if you actually phrase it in terms of, if you actually get into, I want to help you, how can I help you do this better? Like, I actually care about you. I think if you do it this going forward, you're going to crush it even more. Like, you just need to yeah. tweak this thing that you're doing. Like, Changing it around to being about coaching and helping someone, uh, I've seen it um, do miracles. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, just recently with one of my execs, I wanted to put out the policy. And this exec hated it. Like, no, I don't want to do it. It's like, you know, there was lots of back and forth. It was stuck in a bunch of, and then finally the exec came back to me and said, I don't want to do it. Like, I just don't want to, I think this is the wrong thing for the company. Please, please don't push it, don't push it. And I kind of said, look, I'm trying to help you. I, I don't care. But this thing I'm suggesting is going to make your life better. Have you thought about it this way? Like, it's actually to help you. Yeah. Don't you understand right. that? And literally in the call, it says, hey, I, I actually didn't think about it that way. This is really, really helpful. Let me think about it. And then actually went on and implemented it. So it went from 100% opposition to complete yeah. embrace. Uh, and afterwards also said, hey, the way you explained it actually kind of made me uh, realize that it was the right thing. I really appreciate it. It's the right thing. And now it's completely bought into the whole thing. Uh, so that's, thanks to, that's really because of this book. I, I could have done it as a shit sandwich or some logical thing to explain, but I kind of <laughs> made it about like, look, I'm trying to help you. Like, look, idiots, I'm on your side. I'm trying to help you here. Uh, you know, you can ignore me if you want. It, it works remarkably well. Um, that's my favorite thing from yeah. that book. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that, that is really great insight in, in the, the um, you know, it's kind of this fear of the confrontation that, uh, you know, kind of leads you down to this shit sandwich idea. And, and it's interesting, one, it's interesting that, like, Kim wrote Radical Candor because she, she's a woman in that, like, my observation on why the shit sandwich had so much momentum for so many years is that it well, guys. works on? Oh yeah, it works on junior employees with lower EQs, <laughs> and you know your your male managers do tend to have lower EQs, and so if they're junior enough, you can get it off, um, but almost never. Like you, like I don't think you can ever give a shit sandwich to like a savvy woman just because. Yeah, I mean maybe the sexes, but their EQs do tend to be higher on particularly on this kind of thing, just more in tune to like what you're trying to do to them socially. 
And most people won't even remember the positive yeah. stuff, right? They'll just remember yeah. the, like the shit, and they don't know. But I said all this good stuff, and I, I don't even remember you saying that. But it is like you know, it gets to like uh, what I think is a very important concept in leadership, which is, you know, you are kind of fighting with yourself to find the truth. You know, yeah. like what is like why am I? Do I want this person to do this? What is the true situation? Um, you know, and am I committed to the truth or not hurting feelings? Am I willing to live with the truth and its consequences? And that's on, you know, that's true on the product conversation we just had. That's true on these conversations. That's true on like strategy decisions and, you know, things about layoffs. It's like, can you get all the way to the truth, which is, uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's very scary sometimes. And the scariest thing I think for a lot of leaders is, it means that you yourself are inconsistent. Like you said yeah. this, and now you're saying that. Um, yeah. And so what you said before wasn't actually true. Uh, and it's really hard for people to go, okay, I know that's not true now, and I'm going to admit it, rather than, you know, just trying to cover it up and, you know, pat yourself on the back and and all that kind of thing. And it's, uh, you know, that, that that's a really good insight. Okay, I mean, so let you're me absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You want to communicate the truth. And you can't communicate the truth because people have self-defense mechanisms and they're going to kick in and say, oh, so you think I fucked up. You always yeah, think but I you fucked gotta, up. Like, right. You, know? you got to stay in the box. You have to stay in yeah. the batter's box and not, you know, duck the pitch and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and deliver it and deliver the truth and yeah. until they can hear it. And, yeah. But and make the, it. Yeah. Yeah. Make it, make it about, make it about, I'm here to coach you. Like I'm here to help you. Like, if you going forward make these tweaks, you're just you're so talented. You're gonna crush it. Uh, that also has another advantage. So you're caring personally. It also has the advantage that you're removing the blame. It doesn't become like, look, yeah. Ben, this thing like you did you. last week like, it was yeah, fucked you, up. You yeah. you really you really messed it up. You know, it's that was terrible. Like yeah. bad job. And that's when you get into the well. No, you don't have all the data. That's not how I exactly did it. And by the way, that's not how it went down. Okay, I don't know who told you that. You, you know, that's biased. Uh, really, it was these perspective. Let's not talk about that. It's going forward. Tweak this thing, uh, and it'll be so much better for you. I think people are like, oh, okay, I'm trying to help me, and actually, yeah, that would maybe make me better. Instead of getting into, let's litigate the shit you screwed up in the past, and now we have like a trial where you defend yourself of that you didn't screw up, and I try to convince you that you really did. You really were an idiot. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, they, I definitely, and and I would say it's kind of, um, you know, this is where, right, being consistently honest is the place you want to get to because then people will trust where the conversation is coming from, right? Like if anybody suspects, yeah. like you're telling them, that this job wasn't done correctly because you're setting them up to be fired or not give them a raise or whatever, then they're going to be extremely defensive. Yeah. Um, but if they perceive that it's coming from you because you're trying to improve their, help them improve and get better, then you get a totally different reaction. Yes. Um, and that's easy to say, but you can yeah. only achieve it if you're really getting to a very, very fundamental level of honesty. And yeah. that's the... You know, that I, I would just say that's a very hard challenge um, for kind of people in leadership positions. But, it, you know, it, it's probably the core thing that 
do it. Makes people yeah. want to work for you. Yeah. Do it. It, it works, you know, and then, yeah. you know, they'll thank you for it. Really. They come back and thank you for it. It's like remarkable. So that's why I'm, it's also a great book, by the way, it's, this is just like the first few chapters. The rest of the book is just a good management book that has nothing to do with radical candor. So like the title is kind of misleading. It's just a good management book in its own as well about how decisions are made in an organization, how they should be made and so on. It's a little googly in its approach. Yeah. So you, you will, if you exactly implement that book, you'll end up with Google, yeah. but, um, uh, but th that's definitely a favorite. So what else, <laughs> uh, what, what, what other books? So I knew high out, that was not a surprise. Yeah, so kind of like a, a good counter to high output management is uh, Reed Hastings' book um, about Netflix culture called No Rules, or maybe yeah. it's called the No Rules Rules, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, uh, you know, it's a really interesting idea. So the basic premise of the book is you've got uh, kind of traditional companies, um, which were precision you know, was the most important thing, accuracy, quality, you know, if you're building a car, if you're building a microprocessor and so forth. Um, but there's other businesses, you know, like the businesses that you're in that, that um, you know, most tech companies are in, which is creativity and innovation. Like build, if you want to build a culture of innovation, then precision can be your enemy because precision creates a lot of rules about, you know, what money you can spend, what process steps you have to take, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all these measurements around all these steps. And so Reed's thing is, well, the only way to get the company to innovate is to remove the rules because the rules will prevent the best innovations. Um, and his uh, kind of answer, and this is a kind of very rough summary, but his answer to kind of, well, what do you do if you don't have rules, he's like, well, you have, you give people amazing context. So everybody, you work extra time to get everybody on the same page. And he says, you know, he spends a third of his time just meeting with employees, making sure that everybody kind of knows what the company is about and the direction it's headed. Um, and then you like hire great people. And if they display bad judgment, you give them a giant severance package and send them on their way. That's kind of the it is a very kind of yeah. It's a very kind <laughs> of loose version of his philosophy. Uh, but the book is, I, I would just say, it's fascinating because he kind of gets rid of. He's like, no, we don't have OKRs. No, we don't have bonuses. <laughs> no, we we don't have any of that. Um, you know, we just have context, talent density, um, and you know, massive creativity, and we can come up with solutions that nobody else can. And uh, you know. I, I just think it's a great perspective and a way to think about, you know, how you run a business that has to innovate across many, many product cycles that, um, you know, it, it's a bit of a kind of a breakthrough in management thinking. And, uh, and you know, it's a fun book to read just because it's, it's so wild compared to all the other ones as well. But it and really, yeah. really innovative. He's, he's also not like some crazy lucky guy who created Netflix out of just a fluke, right? He's, he had a company yeah. that was successful yeah. and yeah, their company awesome. had was, yeah. And it was highly, highly process oriented and rule oriented. They fixed yeah, everything with is... rules. So it was the rules company. And yeah. so when he really thought it through when he created Netflix to not recreate that. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. It was uh, it was a very, very hard earned set of lessons that um, is so valuable. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so I, I, I would I would definitely recommend that book. I thought it was so. I, I think know, Netflix really goes a little bit. Yeah, I think Netflix goes a little bit too extreme on some things. I don't actually agree yeah. with all of it, but I would say that part yeah. give employees context and spend time with them. That's a good thing to do anyway. I mean, any great leader oh, should it, do that. It's, it's much yeah. much better than um, you know, kind of. OKR, okay, you know, goals, objectives. Do as I say. Like, like, yeah, you can't, because the problem with goals and objectives is you lose the why. Yeah. Um, often the way people kind of do them. Now, there, there are kind of tools and techniques to, to kind of try and enforce those. But the why is so critical because sometimes you should change the goal. Um, be, to get the why. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, we want to, you know, be the leader in whatever in in enter, streaming entertainment. That's what we want, and we're going to measure it in these 27 ways. Well, what if like five of those measurements become irrelevant, and there's something better to measure? Like, who is going to know that? Does that have to be done by the CEO and Netflix? No, because everybody knows why they're doing it, and you know, and why that's important to the company because he sets such a good context, and so that. It's a it's a very kind of different, you know, it kind of turns the whole equation upside down. You don't start with, okay, you can't manage what you can't measure. It's more like, no, we're all going to know exactly why we're here and what we're doing and, and uh, what we want to deliver to customers. And then we're going to figure out how to do that as we go. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's quite an amazing change. I, I'm just saying I, I decouple those two and I take the yeah. give context to employees and motivate them. Yeah. I mean, if they don't understand the why, then they can't be motivated. A person yeah. that's motivated will work 10 times harder and they'll be 10 times more creative and they'll go through walls for you. They'll kill themselves if they're motivated. If, you, if they know why, uh, if they don't know it, if you just say, hey, here are your OKRs, do as I say, this is how we're going to measure you. It's, you know, that you don't get those motivated employees. I think that's, that in itself is a great lesson. You don't need to necessarily do the no rules rules and I'll fire you if everything isn't perfect immediately. You should be super happy if I fire you. I think you can decouple these things. Uh, I think that part about context and the why is everyone should do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Like, right. It's always a good thing to do that. And then the question is, how constraining do you think uh, your metrics, your bonuses, these things are? And if you don't think they're overly constraining then they might be valuable tools and if you do you know reed would argue pretty strongly that to get to the next product the next idea um the rules get in the way but you know i think different people have different approaches yeah it's a pretty innovative company and and there's actually a pretty good uh, book called uh, working backwards that just came out on amazon from guys who had been there kind of the whole way where they do have like quite a bit of like metrics and <laughs> yeah and, and out everything is measured and so forth and they measure inputs um, but they are very creative and so there there are different ways to go about it but that you know no rules is interesting because it's kind of an elegant theory of uh, of innovation yeah there's a famous saying by uh, Jeff Bezos where he called all the employees yeah. together and said uh, good intentions don't work. Which kind of is yeah. the antithesis of let's motivate people, right? He's kind of saying, I don't care if you're motivated or you try to do the right thing or not try to do the right thing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. All that matters is that you have a black box and you have inputs that go to it and there's outputs coming out of it. And we need to figure yeah. out what are those inputs and the outputs and what's the black box. 
and then we measure it. It doesn't matter if you had good intentions or not, which is the polar opposite of kind of what Reed is saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a spectrum. Uh, on the one hand side, you can say, look, I'll just trust you, Ben. Okay, you go apply your creativity. I'll give you context. I'm going to try to give you as much context as possible. You go do, but then you go do whatever you want. Okay, because I trust you and you have that. We're going to empower you and you're going to have a lot of ownership in this company. But the flip side kind of has to be like, I kind of have to fire you quickly if things are not going well, right? Because I gave you so much power. And then there is, yes. the, yeah, and then there's the Amazonian way, which is like, yeah, go do whatever you want, but I'm measuring it 18 ways. And by the way, make sure you write the six pager that gets reviewed top down, <laughs> you know, and yeah. have an FAQ and a PR and everything. And it has to go. You by know. the way, that the, the six pager, it, it literally gets everybody on the same six pages, right? So it is yeah. a great context building tool that they have. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. We're also going to all agree on it and everybody better agree yeah. on it. I mean, it's, it's process, right? So there's a lot, a lot of process yeah. around that, but no, you don't need to worry about uh, getting fired. Like, you know, we were all, we all signed off on the six pager. Um, yeah. So I think there's a spectrum where you have to decide where you want to be in your company. But it's fascinating that Amazon now has, you know, Amazon Prime Videos, which then com competes with Netflix and they have their own movies and stuff where creativity yeah. is really now needed. Um, so it's interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah. So uh, maybe we should talk about remote work since a lot of people asked about that. And, yes. Uh, so well, what are you doing? <laughs> I'll talk about well, how I'm thinking about it. Well, in the long term, we've said, no surprise, like we're not going to any extremes. The extremes would be, mm -hmm. hey, everything goes back to exactly how it was before. Snap back to that. That would be one extreme. Uh, we're not doing that uh, primarily because the employees really, really seem to be productive and they enjoy their time at mm -hmm. home with family and some have moved further out. Uh, so it seems it's working really, really well. The technology is... Uh, technology advancement in the last 20 years is something that surprised, I think, many of us, at least many leaders, I think. Did we think that Slack plus email plus Google Docs, where everything is online, you can find it, plus Zoom uh, can actually enable us to be so efficient at home? Um, no, but now we know we can. So we're not going to have everybody come back to the office 100%. Um, but at the same time, we've also seen that people are uh, feeling more and more that they're not connected to their teams. And especially if you slice it on people who joined during the pandemic, their level of connectedness to the company is far worse than anyone else's. And I think it's a statistic yeah. that people are not looking at. A lot of companies are doing surveys and they're not looking at, what about people who joined after the pandemic started? How do they feel? Uh, and um, there's definitely a sense of, you know, I, I'm not sure I feel I'm part of this company. Uh, I've had multiple employees tell me that, and we've never had that mm -hmm. before. Uh, and, right. um, and, you know, we used to be celebrated for the whole sort of how we onboard people and how everybody used mm -hmm. to become a brickster and the stories and all of that. And it's just harder. Yeah. You're, sitting at, you're sitting at home on Zoom one day and you're working for one company. And the next day you're sitting on the same Zoom, but now you're working for another company. Um, and nothing changed. So we're, we're actually going to have people come in uh, two, three days a week. But we'll focus it more on team building. We'll focus it more on uh, activities that involve the whole group. Uh, and then you can do your work uh, either at home or at the office. So, um, so it's, it's a hybrid of sorts. The other extreme would have been to say, hey, we go completely fully everything remote. We're shutting down. Like We're done here. Um, I think it's closer to what uh, Splunk is doing or uh, some other companies are yeah. sort of going in that direction. I think that's also risky. I think uh, that's a one-way door. I hope they're right. 
because uh, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. very hard to unscramble that egg if they were wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, that, what do you that, think? Uh, they, yeah, I, I think that's pretty close. I mean, you know, so kind of I, I, I'm of a couple of minds about it. One is I think that um, if you think we didn't learn anything during COVID, you're crazy, right? Like we learned a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We learned a lot about efficiency. We learned a lot about how, you know, damaging the commute is to a lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it worked just much better than anybody thought. At the same time, um, I think we also learned kind of the value of being kind of with each other. And yeah. so the way I think about it is we need a new model. It's not the COVID model and it's not the model that we had before. It's a kind of model where we can do efficient things efficiently, but we're much, much more intentional about how and when we get together, how that works, how not distracted we're gonna be when it happens. Um, because, you know, we're getting together to be together. Like there's not just because we happen to be in the office. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, I think onboarding is such a critical thing. You know, the way we onboard people is going to be different uh, and and it's got to work. And people, you have to be able to bring new people into the company. Um, you have to be able to, you know, identify talent and, uh and develop people through their careers and all those kinds of things. And those are not things that we solved during COVID. And so the new operating model has got to have real solutions for all those kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have a lot of meetings on Zoom still. And, um, you know, we're still designing the model or I, I would probably share the whole thing out. But it is, uh, you know, look, I think if you don't embrace the future, um, you're going to lose. And I think if you don't recognize the value of being physically together, you know, at times you're going to lose. So I think both of those are right. Yeah. And I think there's, by the way, going to be more innovation in the space to support yeah. this model. Um, yeah, no, we haven't sure. had the time to actually come up with the technology and the innovations to fully support this model. I mean, Zoom existed and these things existed, but uh, Slack existed, but the ways where we can interact with each other uh, in a casual way. There are startups, but I think there's going to be, there's going to be some winners in that space where everybody kind of gets on, just like you get on Zoom, you get on that app or whatever it is uh, to socialize and bond and other things. Um, yeah, I think no, that's I, also going to happen. Yeah, no, the technology, by the way, there's a whole new set of technology that takes into account everything that we learned during the pandemic that's going to make you know remote work even better. So that's that you know that's another thing where you have to be ready to adopt those tools, uh, you know to the extent that you're working in a remote capacity. Um, but we are up on the hour. So all right. uh, anyway, that, 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 was a, uh, that, that was a fun session. Thank you all. Thank you, everybody, for joining. That was, uh, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great conversation. And um, we thank you, Mark, uh, who had to take care of his youngster. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we will see you next week. Um, and uh, thanks again for listening in. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Mark.